Welcome back to Oliver's Insights, part of the Simplifying Investing podcast series. It's great to have you here. A reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is provided as a guide only. And with that out of the way, here's Shane. G'day everyone and welcome to the latest issue of the Oliver's Insights podcast series. It seems that investment markets continue to be buffeted by multiple uncertainties. The good news is that so far returns this year have actually been okay as shares have climbed the so-called wall of worry. This week we take a look at the main questions investors commonly have in a simple Q&A format. So I guess the first question that I had a look at was, have we seen the peak in inflation? This seems to be the most common question out there. And I guess the good news is that I think we have. Inflation is still too high, but it looks to have peaked. US inflation led on the way up and it looks to be leading on the way down. It has fallen to 5% for the figures that came out a week ago for March from a high of 9.1% in mid last year. Supply bottlenecks have improved or in many cases gone away. Freight costs have fallen and slowing demand is reducing demand-side inflation. While core services inflation, excluding shelter, remains sticky, it is starting to slow. Shelter or rent inflation also looks to have peaked, and our US pipeline inflation indicator continues to point to lower inflation ahead. It's all pretty good news there in relation to the US, albeit we've still got a long way to go before the Fed can feel totally comfortable. In Australia, inflation is lagging the US by about six months and looks to have peaked in the December quarter. No doubt there is likely more upside in electricity prices and rents, and based on the US experience, underlying measures of inflation may take a bit longer to peak. However, the ABS's monthly CPI indicator fell back to 6.8% in February from a high of 8.4% in December. And our pipeline inflation indicator, which looks at a combination of supply and demand factors, continues to point to a further fall ahead in Australian inflation. So that's fairly good news. And I'll come into what that means for central banks in a moment. But I guess one of the big issues is over the last month is what impact will US banking strains have? And of course, we also saw some issues in Europe with Credit Suisse. Good news is that quick action by US and Swiss authorities have settled the banking problems seen in March. However, the banking strains are likely unfortunately, have further to run as tighter monetary policy continues to impact borrowers and hence the quality of loans. And the banking strains look to have increased bank funding costs and pressure on margins and appear to be resulting in tighter lending standards, particularly in the US. Estimates of its impact, that is the banking strains, estimates of its impact by the Fed range from being equivalent to just 0.25% of a Fed rate hike all the way up to 1.5%. So whichever way you cut it, it should take pressure off the Fed in terms of the amount by which it will have to raise interest rates. I guess the question is, given all of this in relation to inflation and the banking strains, have central banks reached the peak on interest rates? Our view is that the combination of easing inflation pressures, the de facto monetary tightening flowing from the banking strains in the US and Europe, and increasing evidence of cooling economies and labour markets suggest that major central banks are at or close to the top on interest rates. Trying to time this is always going to be kind of hard, but I think we've seen the worst of it. I guess a couple of points to note in in relation to all of this. Several central banks recently have paused monetary policy tightening in the last month or so, including the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Bank of Canada, Bank of Korea. In fact, I saw overnight the Indonesian Central Bank also pausing and the Singaporean Monetary Authority. The ECB has continued to tighten, but has softened its tightening bias. In the US, sticky core inflation in March likely means the, the Fed will probably be biased towards one more hike in May, but with falling job openings, a mixed jobs report from March, 
rising jobless claims and the minutes from the last Fed meeting indicating that Fed staff expect bank stress to contribute to a mild recession means that it's a close call. Bottom line is we think we are either at or close to the top terms of Fed interest rates in the US. In Australia, with the labour market being a lagging indicator and economic growth and inflation likely to continue to slow, our view is that we are either at or very close to the peak in rates in Australia ahead of cuts later this year or early next year. Another hike in, in May is still a very high risk, though I'd have to say, as still strong jobs data has added to the risk of a wages breakout and the upswing in the property market, with property prices, for example, in Sydney up 2.6% since their low in February, if sustained, could reverse the negative wealth effect from lower home prices. All of these things obviously could concern the Reserve Bank and tip them over towards another rate hike, although I think that will be unnecessary. Obviously, March quarter inflation data to be released in the week ahead will be watched very closely. So bottom line is we think that we are either at or close to the top in interest rates from major central banks. I guess what is the risk of recession? This of course is the next big issue. Markets arguably will transition from worrying about inflation and interest rates potentially to worry of worrying more about recession. While the risk of recession has receded in Europe with lower gas prices, it remains high in the US with various leading indicators including inverted yield curves where short-term interest rates are above long-term interest rates, warning of a high risk of US recession in the next 6 to 12 months. Over the last 50 years, all US recessions have been preceded by inverted yield curves as is the case now, but the lag can be up to 18 months before we actually tip into recession and, quite importantly, it can give full signals. However, if the Fed soon stops tightening US, soon stops tightening interest rates, a US recession could still be averted, or it could be mild, which could limit further downside in US shares. In Australia, the risk of recession is high, but our base case is that it will be avoided thanks to the combination of strong business investment, Chinese reopening, where the Chinese economy is rebounding faster than many people expected as a result of the reopening from its COVID lockdowns last year, and of course, providing the Reserve Bank soon stop hiking interest rates. Economic growth, though, will slow probably to a crawl through this year, even though I'm hopeful we should be able to avoid a recession providing the Reserve Bank soon stops tapping on the brakes. I guess another big question is, have geopolitical threats faded? These were a big issue through last year, particularly in relation to Ukraine. And we also know that they've increased over the last decade or so in response to a combination of things, in particular, a loss of global faith in the so-called liberal democracy model and relative decline of the US, giving rise to a multipolar world. So far this year, geopolitical issues have not had a major impact on markets, helped by the absence of significant elections in major countries and the stalemate in Ukraine. But risk remain around China and Taiwan, Iran's progress towards nuclear weapons, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and the possible return of Donald Trump in next year's US election. So I guess geopolitical threats are something to keep an eye on, although right now they don't seem to be as pressing as they were um, through last year. How big a problem, though, is the US debt ceiling? The US Congress, as we all know, imposes a ceiling on US government debt that needs to be raised every so often, given its ongoing budget deficit. If it's not raised once reached, spending would have to be slashed back to the level of revenue, leading to a 5% or so hit to US GDP and talk of default on its commitments. And some people worry about that quite intently, particularly in relation to a potential default on its debt servicing commitments. As we saw in 2011 and 2013, raising the debt ceiling can lead to brinkmanship as fiscally conservative Republicans, if they control the House or the Senate or both, seek to reduce the budget deficit and as always Washington leaves things to the last minute. Back then it was resolved, but only in the nick of time and after investment markets fell sharply. The process then caused damage to Republicans' political standing, so in subsequent 
recent years, it was resolved relatively smoothly. However, with Republicans regaining control of the House of Representatives in the US Congress and demanding a commitment to spending cuts, it looks like it will be an issue again this year. The US has already hit its debt ceiling, in fact, that occurred earlier this year, around late January, early February, but cash balances mean that it can probably hold out to mid-year or the third quarter without needing to raise it. Raising it will be a long process where the House passes a bill with spending cuts that's rejected by the Senate and the Biden administration ahead of an inevitable negotiations at some point. But any resolution will again be last minute and markets will fret at the prospect of no deal and a default causing the potential for share market falls at the time. The odds are though that a deal will be reached ultimately enabling shares to rebound, or alternatively, Republicans will get the blame for any default and big cuts to spending, which won't look so good for them ahead of next year's presidential elections. I guess another issue is whether bonds are dead as a portfolio diversifier. Last year saw both shares and bonds sell off, leading many to question the role of bonds as a portfolio diversifier to equity volatility. However, last year's poor performance from bonds and shares together was driven by a common driver of high and rising inflation. This is not that unusual historically when the surge in inflation in the 1970s and then its collapse in the 1980s into the early 1990s boosted the correlation between the two asset classes. With bond yields now a lot higher and inflation falling, bonds are likely to now provide a better diversifier to equities should equities be hit by recession risks. Another big issue, of course, in Australia is where the home prices are bottomed. From their low in February, average dwelling prices in the five biggest capital cities in Australia are up 1.3%, led by prices in Sydney, which are up by 2.6%. This appears to reflect a combination of bargain hunters, first-time buyers and investors stepping in after sharp falls, expectations that mortgage rates have peaked, the return of immigrants and low listings. In many cases, same old, same old, with very tight property market conditions in Australia. Our base case remains, for Australian home prices to fall further out to later this year as interest rate hikes ultimately continue to impact and slower economic growth also impacts. The Reserve Bank estimates that 40% of home borrowers have less than three months of prepayment buffers 15% of variable rate borrowers will have negative cash flow by year end if the cash rate rises to 3.75% and nearly 900,000 fixed rate mortgages are due to reset to interest rates that are more than double their initial level. This all runs the risk of increased distress sales, particularly as growth slows. But the rapid return of immigration, very low rental vacancy rates and constrained supply combine mean that our expectation for a top to bottom fall of 15 to 20% may turn out to be too pessimistic. And indeed, we may have already seen the low in property prices. So given the conflicting forces at present, I would have to say that the property market has become very hard to call. Our base case is yes, we will see more declines, we'll see another leg down, but I can't rule out the possibility that we may have seen the low. I guess the big question is, how can we improve housing affordability? The resurgence of immigration, rental vacancy rates, still very high home price to income and debt to income ratios and surging rents have all refocused attention on poor housing affordability in Australia. Fixing this requires a multifaceted solution across all levels of government with targets to be achieved over, say, a five-year period. My list of policies to improve affordability includes measures to boost supply, relaxing land use rules within reason, releasing land faster, and speeding up approval processes. Matching the level of immigration to the ability to supply housing, and of course this is something we've botched over the course of the last year with the reopening of the borders and the return of immigrants, encouraging greater decentralisation, in other words, people working from home in regional centres, 
centres should make this possible, but it should be helped along with infrastructure, spending and measures to boost regional housing supply. Tax reform. This is a big one. I think some of the issues put up here are a bit of a furphy, but I think there is a very strong case to replace stamp duty with land tax. Cut the capital gains tax discount. I think it's excessive um, and perhaps we should return to the policies that Paul Keating initially used where you would uh, increase your capital gain by the rate of inflation and only tax the real capital gain and also encourage build to rent property. So there's a bunch of things that can be done. Unfortunately, I think the will is often lacking in Australia. I guess the final issue to be concerned about is what is the risk of commercial property slump? Commercial property benefited like other assets from the search for yield as bond yields plunged into the pandemic, providing a positive valuation effect. Some saw the asset class as a replacement for, for bonds in portfolios. However, it's now vulnerable from the double whammy of the rise in bond yields, driving a negative valuation effect at the same time as reduced space demand flowing from the work from home phenomenon in the case of office property and online retail spending in the case of retail property. Of these threats, the first looks more manageable as commercial property still offers a reasonable but lower risk premium over bonds. The second, i.e. reduce space demand, is far more significant and I think does pose significant downside risks for office and to a lesser extent, retail property in the years ahead. So I hope that's been of value. Until we meet again, adios. To keep up to date with Dr. Oliver and the Simplifying Investing podcast series, be sure to subscribe to your favourite streaming platform.